My name is Brooke Johnson and I'm an occupational therapy student at Augusta University. Welcome to My OT Journey Podcast. My name is Rosina Miller and I'm an OTD student at Western New England University. This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to My OT Journey Podcast. Welcome to My OT Journey Podcast. Today we will be talking about pediatric occupational therapy with a focus on sensory integration. Joining us we have Dr. Stalling Saylor, who has been in the field of occupational therapy for over 35 years as a pediatric clinician, educator, researcher, and business entrepreneur. She earned the Bachelor of Science in Occupational Therapy from the University of Florida, the Post-Professional Master of Science in Pediatric Occupational Therapy from Boston University, and the Ph.D. in Educational Psychology from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Stalling Saylor is certified in sensory integration and study with Dr. A. Jean Ayers, the founder of the Sensory Integration Approach in OT, and she is also certified in neurodevelopmental treatment in both pediatric and infant approaches. She is the author of The Screening Assessment of Sensory Integration, SASI, which will begin pilot testing this spring. She is also a current professor at the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences. All right. Hi, Dr. Saylor. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. We're so glad to have you on. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. so, yeah, just uh, shoot whatever questions you'd like to ask. Awesome. Um, well, we were just going to start off and just kind of ask, how did you become interested in pediatric occupational therapy? Okay. Um, well, first, of course, I, I want to thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. I feel very honored to have this opportunity because OT is a great passion of mine, and I love to share it with people. Um, so, yeah, so an answer to your first question, um, I'm a native Floridian. I was born in Jacksonville and grew up in the Gainesville area. And uh, as a very young child, I was hospitalized for several surgeries over a few years' time. And that was probably my first encounter with OT, though I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and back then, and I won't say exactly what year that was, but <laughs> it was a very long time ago. Uh, and back then, um, the OT would come to the pediatric floor in the hospital, and uh, which, of course, is where I was, and they would bring toys and they would play music and, and interact with the children who would come to her area. And... Um, you know, people, you know, the, the parents, the nurses, everybody around, and, of course, the kids, too, um, people just called her the play lady. Um, but then, of course, years later, after studying OT's history in inpatient pediatrics, I realized now that she was an OT. And it's interesting because I think that even then, I had an innate appreciation for the value to my mental health 
of what she provided. Um, you know, being in the hospital for a young child is so anxiety-provoking. Um, and it Absolutely. was just such a relief to me as a little kid to have this protected place and time to escape to where I could feel safe and I could just be a kid, you know, and just feel like, like you know, almost like I was at home or something. And I reflected on that experience later in my career whenever I've worked in, uh, in, with children in any environment, but particularly hospitals because they're the scariest places. Um, and I've always incorporated play and playfulness in all of my sessions to help my patients to heal just through that experience of being a typical kid and just kind of forgetting about you know, their fear or their problems or their pain, you know, for a little while. Yeah, I think that's so important. That really cuts straight to the heart of pediatric OT because I just did my first uh, level two and it was in pediatric OT and Mm -hmm. it was just so much of trying to get them to have fun and doing the occupations within play, which is mainly what the occupation of children is because you don't want them to dread coming to therapy. Yeah, yeah, it's not like, I think a lot of times adults look at it and think, um, as I, you know, was thinking of mentioning later, oh, you're just playing with them and not kind of, when you explain it to them, they go, oh, yeah, that's right. But, you know, children don't come to us and, you know, be put on a machine or to, you know, lie down on the mat table and do exercises the way they might in physical therapy. Um, you know, it's just a whole different context, and it's so important to motivate them. Um, and, you know, and play is, of course, the ideal way to do that because they have what Dr. Ayers called inner drive. They have an inner drive to, to play and to explore and to uh, master their environment in that way. Definitely. Um, So what made you interested in sensory integration theory and therapy? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I think part of it was just kind of being in the right place at the right time. I was very fortunate in that in 1975 and 76, which uh, were the years that I did my level twos, I was a senior in OT school, and then, um, you know, went on to do my level two field work. Uh, That was a time in which Dr. Ayers was doing a lecture tour, and she was traveling all over the country, and it just so happened that she came to the UF campus during my senior year in OT school. And, uh, of course, she was teaching us about her theory and about this new test that she had just developed for measuring sensory integration and motor performance in children. And, you know, up until that time, you know, I was happy with OT. I I thought it was going to be, you know, a good profession and, and everything, but nothing had really sparked my passion, you know. Um, 
But then when mm-hmm. I moved, but this was like the first time that that had really happened to me. And then when I moved to Boston for my first job, Dr. Ayers came there uh, mm-hmm. in the fall that I was first working there. So I was able to hear her teach again. And, you know, I was just totally transformed by her ideas, her approaches, her intellect, you know, just the innate uh, curiosity that she had and her her devotion to children and to helping them. And so I was so inspired by her, and her theories made so much sense to me. Um, and I loved the science that she presented mm-hmm. to support her theories, uh, even though now we know so much more than we did then. Um, but it felt as though we could finally do something therapeutically that would get more to the root of the child's difficulties. And, of course, I'm not talking about all children. I'm just talking about, you know, those with learning disabilities and behavioral difficulties and, and, you know, more mild developmental um, disorders. And, uh, but, but it just felt that I could really be so much more effective um, rather than just simply using approaches, which to me at least felt as though I was just chipping away from, you know, from the outside in. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I was also, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge, you know, the other um, teachers that I had who encouraged my, my development, um, particularly my pediatrics professor at U.S., uh, Dr. Lila Lorenz, who gave me a very solid foundation in understanding how children develop. develop. So, you know, uh, and she's really the one who was responsible for inviting Dr. Ayers to come to campus. Um, so, you know, SI was just a perfect fit in explaining to me more the ingredients of normal development. Mm-hmm as well as, you know, the kinds of things that can go wrong that affect the brain's organization of learning and behavior. And uh, that foundation that I started out with was greatly enhanced by my master's degree studies at Boston University, which at that time was sort of the East Coast epicenter for education (laughs) and research and sensory integration. And so then at BU, I conducted my thesis research on the use of vestibular activities and the treatment of children with autism, which was quite a challenge doing that literature review because at that time there was little to no research, little to no literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, right. there was starting to be more on autism, but really virtually none having to do with you know, sensory processing and um, things like that. You know, I discovered a little bit, which was just enough to whet my appetite. Um, But then not long after that, uh, Dr. Ayers wrote, started to work with children with autism more and came out with um, a publication of her own as well as her second book that she wrote on sensory integration and the child. 
That's awesome. Yeah, um, I feel like sensory integration is um, definitely important to understand when you're working with um, children. I know in my um, school at Western Union University, we touched on it a little bit, but definitely learning the concept as we were as we were going along, it kind of made more sense, especially when you look at the way a child develops, the way they take input and um, give output, that kind of stuff. Um, I think very, very important, um, and her work is very much appreciated in the field. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, and you're absolutely right. Um, because, uh, you know, every activity, everything we do involves the processing of sensory information. And yeah. if you have the kind of nervous system that either, you know, is not able able to perceive, you know, the meaning of that um, and or um, being able to, you know, modulate and sort of control the flow or regulate the flow of input coming into your nervous system, um, it can be extremely difficult, not only uh, from a learning standpoint, but, you know, in everyday relations with people, you know, right. relating to your own parents. You know, it's, if you think about the importance of touch, for example, in, you know, child infant-child attachment, um, and then imagine being the, the mom, especially, of a baby who has tactile uh, defensiveness <laughs> um, and doesn't tolerate mm -hmm. being held or has feeding issues. I mean, that yeah. just goes to the heart of that early relationship, which can damage it for a lifetime, you know, um, sure. if people don't understand what's going on. How do you um, explain sensory integration to parents or the caregivers of the child you're working with? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes it starts with, uh, you know, the parent coming in for their first uh, visit for the evaluation, and um, I always have the parent complete, you know, a questionnaire or a tool such as the sensory profile. Um, either, you know, before they come or while they're sitting in the reception area while I'm working with the child. I like to get the information before testing because it gives me an idea of, you know, a little bit of what's going on before that. But mm -hmm. oftentimes the parent in the process of completing that uh, or in com completing it in tandem with their spouse, the child's pa other parent, one or both of them will say, you know, I realize as I'm completing this questionnaire that I had a lot of these problems when I was growing up. Are we still on? Yep, we're still yes, here. Sorry. Oh, okay. I heard a funny noise. <laughs> sorry. Um, so oftentimes just completing that questionnaire is an eye-opener for them, you know, in relation to themselves as well as to what's going on with their child. And then um, I just explain it much in the same way that I've, in my conversation with you, uh, in just explaining that, you know, in order for a child to learn in, in school or 
within their environment, they have to be able to uh, adequately process and, you know, take in and process and understand the sensory input that's uh, a part of whatever they're doing, you know, whatever they're looking at or, or feeling or, uh, or, or seeing or hearing, um, you know, they have to be able to do all those things before they can understand, you know, the bigger picture of uh, what it is that someone is trying to teach them. And um, it's a little more difficult for some parents. Um, sometimes one parent will understand, the other parent does not, uh, or maybe does not want to understand. Uh, maybe sometimes those things do hit a little close to home with them. Um, but you know it's very important that they do, uh, and it's such a it's such an epiphany for most of them um, because it just opens a whole new way of you know it's like oh now I finally understand what's going on, and it also helps them to understand that you know my child is not just trying to tick me off, <laughs> my child is not just trying to quote unquote get attention which is what, you know, a lot of teachers will tell them or people mm-hmm. in, you know, behavior man- the behavior management field, uh, that, you know, that's the way that a lot of, especially if the child has some socially negative or quote-unquote inappropriate behavior, challenging behaviors, um, that the child isn't, just trying to get your attention. Maybe it's a cry for help, <laughs> but not in the way that you might think. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, we have helped the family immensely just purely by helping them to understand the problem. And, uh, and of course, then that goes a long way in obtaining their, uh, their participation and their collaboration in working with a child at home because, of course, therapy with these kids is not just, you know, it's not one or two hours a week and then you go home and just do whatever you've always done. It's really, you know, the brain is developing 24-7 and so the the therapy process is a 24-7 proposition and... uh, and that's challenging for a lot of families, you know, especially if they have other children. Um, and we need to understand that side of the coin as well and not, you know, overburden them with a lot of home programs and things like that, but as much as possible trying to embed, you know, some things into what they normally do with, with the child every day. Uh, and just mm-hmm. maybe do some things to um, help the environment around the child in a way that will help the child to um, be better self-regulated, you know, and, and kind of paying attention to, you know, what they need to get going in the morning <laughs> or what they need to be able to calm yeah. down and fall asleep at night. So, um you know, it's it's very it's a very complex kind of uh, situation. Right. Um, How have you seen the field or of sensory integration and just the awareness of it change in your career? 
Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's just been explosive. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's been quite transformative. Um, and I think that, uh, of course, one of the biggest stimulator, stimulators of the demand for OT has been, uh, first of all, of course, inclusion of occupational therapy as um, a vital profession within Medicare legislation, which most insurance companies, you know, take their cues from uh, what's being done at the federal level. Um, But then also the second thing, and of course this was a great boon to pediatric OT, is the inclusion of OT and the, well, the original... um, Education of All Children Act, which occurred in the 1970s, which was then followed by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, you know, which required OT to be a, a related service offered to children with disabilities in the school system. And I think, you know, that led to a demand for OT in other, you know, other realms um, and spurred the creation of, you know, private practices and OTs getting into the entrepreneurial side of providing services because, of course, and, and this has become more limited over time in the beginning in the schools, we were, we had a little more leeway. We could provide I think a lot more services that today would be defined more as, you know, quote-unquote, you know, medically-based OT. And so now there's a more strict delineation between what is educationally relevant versus what is medically relevant. But, um, you know, I think what we were providing gave people a greater understanding of what we had to offer and you know, parents decided, hey, you know, this is this is doing great in school. I think I want my child to have more of this, you know, uh, outside of school. So I think all of those dynamics together created an environment where uh, we also began to receive uh, better payment through the private insurance system. So uh, it was. Mm-hmm definitely a lot of things that came together to uh, cause this to happen. So um, there were, you know, huge changes that have occurred uh, during, you know, my years as an OT. Right. Um, Dr. Saylor, you have a variety of different job titles, such as occupational therapist, researcher, and professor. Do you have a favorite among these? If so, why or why not? Well, no, I don't. And that is one of my greatest challenges because I love all of them. Well, that's good. <laughs> <And they're> just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there aren't sufficient hours in a week for me to engage meaningfully in uh, all of those. And I also love to write, so you could add that to the list. Oh, wow. Um, but that, yeah, but that's the one thing that's probably the most time-consuming of all of them, um, but with the most delayed gratification, right, because it can take exactly. a long time. And, uh, you know, you may or may not get published, so um, 
you know, it tends to be the the one that kind of gets put on the back burner more than some of the others. But, uh, you know, I, I love Dr. Ayer's model because she, when she um, opened her own clinic, mm-hmm. she said, you know, you know, that was kind of the perfect marriage of all of those because she was able to treat children. She took OT graduate students to come and study with her, uh, and she was also able to do research with children. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. it was kind of, and then she also, of course, did, you know, writing. And uh, so that was seemed like the perfect marriage to me. Um, right. But, you know, she also didn't, uh, back in those days, being in business wasn't as involved as it is nowadays. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a complex kind of proposition to try to do all of those things and run a business at the same time. Um, so, Definitely. but anyway, I... I, I love uh, I love teaching right now. I did have my my private practice for uh, about almost fifteen years. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, but is you know it is uh, it can be draining, and I still wanted to be able to teach, and you know trying to do all of those things, and of course my family is very important to me. Right. Um, so, you know, there have been lots of times when I really wish I could get along on about four hours of sleep per day, uh, but that's not going yeah. to happen on a long time, ba- long-term basis anyway. Um, no. So, uh, you know, but it's, it's, I think it's uh, one of the things that makes this field so rewarding, you know, because there are so many things you can do. You can change careers practically, and still be within the field of OT. Because exactly. There's so no many different directions. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Well, you mentioned writing and researching, so I thought this would be a good segue into talking about the screening assessment of sensory integration, or the SASE. Could you just speak a little bit on the development of that and what the use of that would be? Sure. Well, um, just to tell you a little bit about the tool itself, um, it is, uh, it's made up of a total of seven domains, which are, you know, uh, each one is one of the main constructs of sensory integration and, you know, on the continuum from function to dysfunction, um, there's also a dysfunction uh, end of the continuum. And so, the SASE is intended to be able to identify children who have difficulties uh, in one or more of those domains. Usually they have more than one, of course. But, um, and the domains are uh, visual praxis, uh, tactile or somatosensory discrimination, uh, auditory processing, uh, praxis, bilateral organization, and uh, vestibular proprioceptive processing, and then finally sensory modulation across all of those different areas. And um, it's very difficult to, oftentimes people say, how can that be a screening tool? It looks too long because right now it does have a lot of items, but it's important to realize that 
you have to have a lot of items in the beginning because it's during the field testing and pilot testing process that mm -hmm. you sort of sift through and you find the items that you know are the most meaningful that identify children the best. And um, so, uh, so that but that got started way way back uh, in the I would say the late 90s. I began to, I guess as a result of my teaching the SIPT and some of uh, the writing I had done, I began to get invitations from groups of therapists in other countries. And they wanted mm -hmm. me to come and teach them about sensory integration treatment or you know, OT treatment for sensory integrative disorders. Yeah. And, but the difficulty was that you know, they did not have access to our assessment tools. And in many cases, um, some of OTs in some of those countries were only just uh, graduating to having bachelor's degrees when we were about to embark on requiring the master's degree. So uh, many of them, you know, they didn't have a background in research or statistics they uh, didn't have a ton of even pediatric background, and so uh, and and didn't didn't have a uh, history of uh, assessment, formal assessment, the way we were beginning to. And so I thought, you know, I can't just go in there and teach them treatment. I, they have to know, have some idea of how to evaluate children and have an understanding of, you know, what are those constructs or concepts that are included under that umbrella of sensory integrative theory and practice. And so I quickly thought, oh my goodness, I need to develop some kind of tool to teach them, even though I don't have norms, um, but some way of helping them to evaluate their children, just to have some idea of mm -hmm. if the child has problems, and if so, you know, what general areas they're having difficulty in. So I just started developing the SASI, and it was kind of a combination of like many, <laughs> like many tests that were similar to some of the subtests of the SIP, but also um, I wanted to include some things that were really more probably drawn from neuropsychology mm -hmm. uh, and also mm -hmm. the clinical observations that not only heirs but other people had developed, uh, most notably um, uh, Dr. Tallon in uh, the Netherlands and Germany um, and so, or Dr. Prechtel and Dr. Talon. And um, so I wanted to include, you know, those things as well. And so I, I came up with the SASI, and I used it when I taught in, I taught in Israel, Portugal, wow. uh, Poland, um, you know, and... Those therapists just, I mean, it lit a fire under them. They got so excited, and they started testing kids and collecting their own norms, and, I mean, it was like they took off faster than I could keep up with them, 
And uh, but everyone was mm-hmm. saying, and I was also using it to teach because I was, you know, at that time we were still at the bachelor's level too, and so I started using it as a way to teach my pediatric students how to assess and just to kind of get familiar with this is these are the lens that you use to examine this this area of problems and uh, this area of function. And so, in a way, it was kind of like I was preparing people to be able to go on and then, you know, become certified and learn the sensory integration and praxis test, and and many did. I mean, they said it was great preparation for that. But what a lot of people liked about the SASE, as we call it, was that it's so much shorter. (laughs) Um, The SIFT was wonderful in its time, um, and we needed, we, we needed to go through that evolutionary period, I guess you could say, um, because the length was necessary in order to obtain the reliability and validity that were needed in order to, for it to be taken seriously. Okay. And um, so, yeah, so then when I had the opportunity to teach again, uh, because I, you know, let's see, after that, well, I, I, I did continue teaching, then I went into private practice again, and um, I kept, you know, people kept saying, you know, sassy, sassy, you got to, you know, you got to get norms. So I, I went back to teaching, and I, I made sure that I found a program that had students write a you know, a thesis, that do, do an actual research thesis. And so uh, through that, uh, that mechanism, I was teaching at Brunel University, and at that time, students were, if you had, were getting a Master of Science degree, you had to do a thesis. And so uh, they, did, they weren't doing independent theses the way I did in my master's program, but they were working in groups. And so I kind of offered this development of the SASE um, as a way for them to get that experience. And so I'm so indebted to all of those wonderful Bernal graduate students to help it, for helping me to get the SASE off the ground. And um, so, you know, because of those studies and uh, the, you know, the statistical analyses that we did and the promise that the SASE showed, uh, I was able to, you know, um, get an invitation totally, totally unexpected from academic therapy publications um, who came to one of my presentations at AOTA and said, you know, we're really interested in publishing your test. So um, that's where we are. And uh, we've produced the training videotapes for that, and I've written the administration section of the manual, and uh, now we're just kind of cleaning up some uh, things in the test to, to get it ready for pilot testing because you kind of go about things in a different way when you're pilot testing. And so I'm, I'm kind of having to you know, revise a lot of things and 
get it get it ready for that process. But uh, I'm I'm almost there with that. So so it's very exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yes, thank you. Excited for well, you. Well, anyone anyone out there is interested in becoming a pilot examiner, um, the publisher does pay for your time, and uh, they can get in touch with me if, whenever you want to provide my email address. Um, when I do that in writing or do it over the podcast, um, I can tell people how to get in touch with me, and uh, I can pass on their information to academic therapy publications. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a question. Can I give my email address? Yeah, you, yeah go ahead. Okay. You can give your email address yeah. right now. Okay, sure. sure. It is, uh, you can use my university address, which is ssailor, so S-S-A-H-L-E-R, at usa.edu. Perfect. Thank you. Awesome. You bet. Throughout your experience in working in other countries, um, what would you say is the major difference other than um, education? What would you say is like the major difference that you see in therapeutic approaches in the field of occupational therapy, especially when it comes to working um, in the pediatric area of mm-hmm. OT? Okay. Well, of course, I haven't taught in all countries. Um, and a lot of it really depends on how, first of all, of course, how, de- how developed healthcare in general is okay. um, and how developed, um, you know, university education is. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, how much of a foothold OT has in that country to begin with. Um, some countries... You know the the dividing up of the pie, so to speak, um, in in terms of providing services to people with disabilities, which also includes children, mm-hmm. is done in different ways. Yeah, and uh, and probably a big difference has to do with uh, the method of payment for services uh, in countries that have a more established socialized medicine uh, environment, it's, it's more difficult to get, get a private practice going. Um, but, you know, especially when you're talking about children, parents with children will go to, you know, any means necessary. They will make great sacrifices to get what their children need. And, um, and so I've known people who worked in some of those countries and, you know, uh, once parents found out, you know, what they had to offer, you know, they were begging them to please work privately with my child uh, because they could not get, the children couldn't get what they needed uh, in that system. And uh, so, you know, so um, it's very different. You know, and then in other countries where, and, and it also depends, of course, on the economics of the country. Um, many, right. if, if a country has a, a, a population where there are people uh, with with money or where there's a strong 
middle class as well as right. well as upper class, um, socioeconomically, of course. Um, you know, there there's much more of a demand, and also people. You know, some of those folks will even travel to the United States, and you know, I've had I've had parents contact me and say, you know, I, I want to come and live in the U.S. for the summer and have you work with my child every day, you know, wow. like all day long. <laughs> wow. And, and it's like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I have a practice yeah. with all these other children that also yeah. need my services and I can't just shove them to the side, you know, right. work with your child. But, you know, the point being that um, it's, really a lot of what we do is not available in other countries and they will make those kinds of sacrifices right. uh, to come here. So, um, but I, I think that's changing. It's, it's definitely improving. And um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what the future brings on that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions you think people have about OTs who work in pediatrics? Well, uh, and I think I alluded to this earlier. Of course, the first thing is that, you know, they look at what we're doing, and of course we do use play a lot, so they they feel like, oh, well, you're just playing with them, you know. I could do right. that, you know, or I, I can have the babysitter do it or the nanny or whoever. Um, not understanding the complexity of all the things that we are addressing through the medium of play. And so it's very, very important that we, we can't assume that everybody's done their homework and has an understanding of what it is that we're doing. So we really need to, as much as possible, have the parent there in the room and explain to them you know, as we're going along, what it is that we're doing and why. Um, and uh, and I think that's particularly true in when we're using sensory integration because it is so complex. It requires some, such an understanding of the brain and, and an ability on our part to distill that down to a level that they can understand and, you know, provide them with, um, materials and you know, web uh, web-based resources that they can look at, uh, which is so much that's enhanced our effectiveness so much more now. You know that people have all these different resources that they can look at. Not not 100% of which are you know the best, but you know most of them are pretty good. Uh, and then I think in the schools. Um, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to pigeonhole us as, oh, well, you're the fine motor person or you're the handwriting person. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, there again, we, we have to work pretty hard to expand the perspective of those folks uh, concerning, you know, all of the things that we have to offer and, and not not limit uh, ourselves because of their low expectations and their lack of understanding. Right. Um, I think sometimes we as OTs, you know, we want to kind of go along to get along, and that mm -hmm. may serve us in the short term, 
but we really need to try as much as possible to, you know, advocate for ourselves, advocate for the children, and really build partnerships um, with, you know, the other school personnel, the teachers, the, you know, PT is there, the speech pathology in particular, we work, we can work hand in glove with the speech pads. And the social workers, the counselors, um, and, you know, nothing succeeds like success. So uh, when, you know, for example, when I requested to have one of the portable classrooms behind the school that I was working in, um, you know, they kind of looked askance at that, but they were more than happy to give it to me eventually because, you know, the library didn't want me coming in there and working with kids because we were getting noisy. And they didn't want me working in the hall with the kids because with the scooter board and everything and the laughter and the <laughs> wailing and, you know, yelling, that was disruptive. And so they were very happy to give me my own space. Wow. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I basically transformed into a mini, you know, kind of a mini OT clinic. Um, I even got some suspended equipment in there. And, uh, and, you know, it wasn't too long before, you know, teachers were saying, what are you doing in there? I mean, he's, he's such a different kid or she's such a different kid. And showing me their, their work, you know, um, how they went from, you know, taking an entire page to write a letter of their name down to, you know, nice, neat you know, uh, half-inch high letters, you know, on the page uh, within a few months' time, um, mm-hmm. you know, or just, you know, behavior uh, behavior problems, challenging behaviors in the classroom being greatly improved. And so, uh, right. you know, I just, I just advise people, don't let others define you. You define you let the profession define you and find a way to kind of begin all the things that you know and that you have to offer and you know in time you will find advocates you know who will help you fight you know for what you have to offer definitely that's great advice awesome um my next question for you Dr. Saylor, is considering the changes that have that um, we have witnessed um, thus far within the field of occupational therapy, what are your thoughts on shifting from master's to a doctorate for entry-level degrees? Well, you know, probably my thoughts kind of mirror what's been happening with uh, <laughs> the struggle between you know, the association, AOTA, and ACOAT, and, mm-hmm. you know, the people that are represented, the constituency um, that are represented by one or both of those organizations. And I guess, you know, I, I do support the doctorate to an extent, but the only misgiving I have is that I feel like research needs to be pushed more 
in our Mm -hmm. doctoral programs. Even though we're not, you know, awarding the Ph.D., uh, you know, when we went to the master's degree, one of the main arguments for that was, quote, unquote, so we could produce more research. Okay, so we got the master's degree, and we did produce, I think, a little more research. But, you know, now we're going to the doctorate, and all of a sudden we're hearing people say, oh, well, this is just an entry-level doctorate. It shouldn't involve research. And I really Mm -hmm. disagree with that. I I think we're doing the profession a disservice because I think it's causing the enrollment in Ph.D. programs to drop uh, because once people get one doctorate, they're much less likely to go back for another one and incur that expense. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really point. do need much more research. You know, the baby boomers, <laughs> a lot of us who came along at the time when you went from a master's to a Ph.D., uh, we're beginning to retire. Many of us already have. And I'm just worried that we're going to be leaving a, a great void behind, um, you know, of people who, you know, for through no fault of their own, but they were not trained to, to conduct research. or they're, Now they're in a position of trying to catch up, but they don't have the tools to be able to do that. And uh, in terms of, you know, the, the learning, the courses, et cetera. So... Um, I, I, I'm in favor of the entry-level doctorate, but I'm not in favor of us kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and I think that out in the greater healthcare arena, uh, hospital administrators, you know, look at that and think, oh, great, now I'm going to have a bunch of, I've had, I've had a bunch of physical therapists, you know, who they went to the doctorate, now they want a lot more money. Now we're going to have all these OTs who are going to the doctorate, and they're going to want higher salaries. And, uh, you know, if you just look at the bigger picture, it does create a strain on the healthcare system, and we may be shooting ourselves in the foot. I don't know. I I don't think we've been doing this for long enough to see the dynamic effects of it. But, um you know, I, I hope that we get a little more evidence under our belt before we completely throw out the master as a point of entry. I definitely agree. Well, yeah. We talked a lot about that in our program because we had a really great research professor, and she's a big advocate for getting more evidence in uh-huh. OT because there's just so many holes that we need to fill. Oh, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, and uh, I don't know. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that more of these people that are getting their uh, entry-level OTDs will be motivated to go on and get a PhD. I I would like to see us build um, build in some bridge programs <laughs> so that you know people could maybe get credit for some of their OTD work, but then you know go on maybe take a lot more research courses and maybe some higher level theoretical courses and be able to get a PhD um, because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we really need it. The, 
there's never been more of a demand for evidence than we have now, and but it just seems like we're paddling backwards, you know. And I, uh, there's a part of me that just doesn't quite understand that. I may get in trouble no, with whoever listens to this. But <laughs> 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 that's what I thought. And that's, <laughs> that's what I think. Uh oh. Well, for practitioners that are working, if they wanted to do research, what advice could you offer them for if they wanted to do that simultaneously? Or if they were afraid or mm-hmm. think it's too time-consuming or difficult? Mm-hmm. I would say, um, first off, of course, it depends on your, um, you know, the site, the type of site that you're working in. But I think the, the first key is to... Pay attention to, um, like, for example, what tests are you using and begin to build a database right from day one. You know, just a simple Excel spreadsheet with all of your test scores going across the top and the kids' names down the side or, you know, something that identifies them. And if you don't have time to do it yourself, um, if there's a clerical person who can work on it and they're you know, uh, not so coping as spare time, um, <laughs> you know, have or share it amongst all the therapists, but start building a database of all of your assessment data and then uh, also, you know, any changes that occur over time. You know, if you use those same assessments to retest, uh, enter that in too so that you can track the changes that occur. And then when you get a database built up, don't worry about not understanding, you know, statistics or data analysis. Go to a local OT program and talk to someone on the faculty, maybe it's someone you, who's still there <laughs> since you went to school there, and say, <laughs> look, I have this database. And I want to do research, but I don't exactly know where to start. I don't know how to, um, you know, how to frame the data, what to do with it, how to analyze it. And, you know, they would be more than happy to help. Um, But I think, you know, so much water goes under the bridge, uh, we lose track of uh, all that data. Of course, it just ends up in a a file somewhere um, or on a, you know, on, on, a, on a computer and an electronic medical record system. Um, but uh, I think that it, that's really where it starts, you know. And even if you don't know for sure which population you're interested in um, or age or whatever it might be, just go ahead and Start, you know, with that, you know, of course, track ages, mm-hmm. the ages of the children and their diagnosis and maybe some socioeconomic stuff and, uh, and just kind of build that up. And, uh, and then you have something to work with. But, you know, it's, it's hard to do research. It's, it's harder to start it at the beginning than to try to do it retroactively. Right. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of advice, um, what advice 
would you have to offer to OTs or OTA students? Um, in the sorry, what advice do you have to offer to OT or OTA students about um, what how lo long time? Sorry, <gasps> what advice do you have to offer OT or OTA students about um, being like a practitioner in the future? Um, or just the long-term long practitioners in general uh, who are interested in PEDS um, at all, or even just fieldwork students like myself, because I know um, next semester I'm going to be doing schools, and I'm a little bit nervous, but um, speaking to you has definitely um, given me some confidence. So just kind of like in general, um, what, what would you have to offer? Okay. Well, I would say first, um, within the academic part of the program, you know, and look, we all know OT school can be tough at times, um, especially if you're working, you know, or you're trying to balance school and work and, and if you have a family um, or, you know, other obligations outside of school, uh, can be difficult. Um, but it can also be a period of great growth and great enlightenment and inspiration. So as much as you can, really try to dig in, just kind of marinate in the whole thing, you know? <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and I think I see too often students who, and it's because they, they don't have the perspective, like I, I have twenty twenty hindsight, you know? Um, and, and many times I wish that I had, you know, really dug in and, and let myself marinate and, you know, just everything there was to learn, you know. Okay. Um, but I was trying to, to balance a lot of things, too, and also wanted to enjoy, you know, college life. That's normal. Sounds like um, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so try to soak up as much as you can. Okay. And just do it for the love of it and not just try to get by, you know, but okay. really soak it up and realize that you probably have a lot of professors that you might think, oh, well, they're not working with kids or patients anymore, so they don't really know what's going on. That's not necessarily true. Right. Uh, in fact, I hope it's not true, but uh, most of the time they know a lot more than students give them credit for. Um but then uh, on field work, you know, another thing that distresses me greatly is when I see students sell their books <laughs> at the end of the semester. And I know there are a lot of financial pressures, but I mean, half of my, when I, my field work site was far away. I went from Florida to Connecticut from my first level two. And, oh, wow. you know, my dad, my dad was like, got so tired from loading boxes of books in the car. Um, you know, I took <laughs> all my books with me and I studied. I mean, it's not a place where you think, oh, thank God I don't have to study anymore. You know, you just study even more because you want to do the best that you can for your patients. And, of course, you want to perform well um, in that study. And um, so, you know, again, um, but you're studying, but it's, it's more with a purpose. So you'll be right. more motivated, you know, right. to do that. Um, that and uh, so, you know, I think that's 
that's really important. Um, and, you know, don't go there feeling like you have to know everything there is to know on day one. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Definitely something to work on. Yeah, it's hard not to do that. But, you know, as soon as you know from your your CI, your supervisor, mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me, um, as soon as you know what your caseload is and what the conditions are of the patients that you're going to be working with, you know, immediately begin to research those conditions and, you know, bone up on them if it's, something that, you know, maybe it's more rare. Maybe it's something that, you know, there's so many genetic conditions. We don't have time in OT school to teach you about all of them. Oh, yeah. Um, So, you know, just really start right away, you know, try to stay ahead of the curve as much as you can to uh, learn about those and use your textbook to read up on, you know, assessment tool. That's the other thing, you know. Immediately look around at the assessment tools that your clinic uses, and, you know, if there's one you're not so familiar with, uh, ask to be able to take the the manual home at night, you know, to study it. Um, so that's really the best way. You know, I think, you know, as we say, knowledge is power. Um, knowledge is also confidence. And, and you develop confidence from doing and mastering. Um, you don't get confidence from other people patting you on the head and saying good job. Really get it from from doing it, you know, and and, Absolutely. and conquering it that way. Yeah. Um, as far as people, you know, who are out in the field um, or new grads or whatever, I would say, you know, don't take your job for granted. Um, you know, stay a, an active member of, AOTA, your state association, because their work is so important to the growth of the profession and to us keeping our jobs. You know, they, that's why they're located in Washington, D.C., so that they're close to the centers of power, to where the legislation occurs, and, you know, we have, um, you know, um, people who go and talk to legislators and try to influence policy because, you know, that's, that's how we, you know, keep our jobs is uh, by being able to, to be paid. <laughs> um, and we don't just do that by staying in our own little box and doing a really good job. We have to have people at the top who are advocating for us and lobbying for the profession right. and for our clients um, being able to have access to our services. So, um, you know, that's, that's really important. And, and if you, you know, if you stay in contact and you know, for example, that there's a bill that's coming up for, you know, before your state legislature, and usually those have, have something to do with Medicaid, um, uh, but or you know or at the federal level, um, you know write letters and encourage your patients to write letters. You know if they believe in what you're doing. Um, so you know get empowering others to uh, advocate for themselves as well as for us because without us, their child or their family member can't get our services. 
Um, and I would also say just remember that, you know, to the people around you, you, pre- you don't just represent yourself. You represent the entire profession. And by your deeds or misdeeds, um, you know, uh, on the less fortunate side, uh, you can color their perception of OT forevermore and could even not only cost yourself your job, but maybe cost that facility your position, you know. So um, mm-hmm. we need to realize that, you know, we're just the ripple in the pond, Um or we're not just, you know, a ripple. We send send them out in different directions. And, you know, it's just really important to um, uh, to, to get, get people on our side and to understand and, um, you know, want to, to root for us. So... Definitely. Um, and the other thing I would say for field work, leave your phone at home or leave it in your desk. <laughs> And don't carry it around in your pocket and look at it (laughs) while you're working with patients. Um, It gives a very bad message uh, because it tells your patient that you're more interested in other things than you are in them. So um, I would say that's that's the other thing. And uh, try to think of what you can do where you're influencing the patient and their ability to perform occupations and not just, you know, mindlessly stack cones or uh, work on a, you know, bicycle, upper extremity bicycle or that kind of stuff. Those can be preparation to the occupation, but they shouldn't be the whole session. And I think too often we get lulled into thinking that we have to be you know, many, many PTs or something. Um, and, you know, that's not the stuff that's, that the patient will find meaningful or be motivated by. And motivation is such an important aspect of plasticity in the brain. You know, we don't learn anything unless we're motivated to learn it. So, um, you know, I think that's another important thing to, to remember. Definitely. That's a great advice. Yep. Love it. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and try to wrap up. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to say, or did you want to give your email address again, just in case anyone missed it before? Sure, yes. Um, It is ssaylor, S-S-A-H-L-E-R, at comcast.net. All right, perfect. Awesome. Thank you. And say that you're interested in being a pilot tester, I will forward your information on to the project manager. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. We enjoyed having you as well. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!